Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes, the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. As a worldwide educator and developer of best-in-class hand therapy content, Susan Weiss, occupational therapist and certified hand therapist, brings you an array of hand therapy specialists, hand care solutions, and more. Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. We have an amazing hero today joining us from Canada, Amanda Higgins. Amanda has been a clinical occupational therapist in upper extremity rehabilitation at the St. John Regional Hospital in New Brunswick, Canada since 2003. Amanda has had the privilege to present all over the world on the wide awake local anesthesia approach and how it influences hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. Amanda works in a dynamic, interactive hand therapy setting and has lots of great information she's going to share with you. Let's first start out by finding out how Amanda got into hand and upper extremity rehabilitation. Well, I graduated from um, the occupational therapy program. It was a Bachelor of Science in Occupational Therapy at Dalhousie University in Nova Scotia. Um, And we had a little bit, so it was a three-year program, and we had a little bit um, of upper extremities. We had a full anatomy course, and upper extremity was part of it. So I was interested in that part. And then we had a little bit in our program, just a tiny bit of introduction to splinting and um, upper, extremi- upper extremity injuries and diseases and problems that could happen. Very, very brief. But in that period of time, I was like, I, geez, I wonder if I'll be able to find some kind of work to go with that. And luckily in my last year of the OT department, of uh, this OT program, I had to do some placements as most people do, some work terms. And I got matched Um, with two hand therapists that worked at the St. John Regional Hospital, which is where I currently work. And I did an eight-week program with these two hand therapists and loved it. Had a great time, a great learning experience. And I knew right after that, that this is the area that I hope I will eventually move into. When I graduated from occupational therapy program, um, there wasn't, and I wanted to go back home. So I went back to St. John uh, to work, I uh, there wasn't a, a position for me in the hand therapy um, part of my dep- of the department. So I did a general occupational therapy family medicine rotation. And while I was doing that, and it, and I was doing a locum, so I was filling in for a maternity leave, hoping for uh, full time permanent employment at some point. While I was doing that, one of the um, therapist in the plastic surgery uh, area um, became pregnant and went on maternity leave. I, because of my practice with my work term, I was the successful applicant to continue on with um, her position and she chose not to come back, which was huge because I then had enough experience in it that when I applied, I had in my work area, it's not only what your uh, abilities are, but it's also some with seniority. And so I had an opportunity to fill uh, that position permanently. And I have been in that position now since late 2002, early 2003. And what was really great about that experience is 
the surgeons at the time that I worked at, which was Don Lalonde, and I know he's been on the program before, um, Dr. Jim O'Brien and Dr. Jerry Sparks, despite the fact that I was brand new therapist, they welcomed me into their clinic and into their practice almost immediately. And I learned so much. And so I've been very, very thankful for um, the opportunity that I had. And really, it was a little bit of hope and will, but a lot of luck. And, uh, and so far, it's been a really rewarding move and career. That's wonderful. So you were the only hand therapist there at that point yes. since she took her leave and she didn't come back? She took her leave and didn't come back, but there was another therapist and okay. this, that therapist is still in her position. So I, I am the only right now, um, in this year, I'm the only full-time. So I work full-time Monday through Friday in, um, our hand therapy practice. Um, and then I have two colleagues that are occupational therapists and they work 0.5 or part-time positions. One of those therapists was one, it was my preceptor. So she has been there since 2000 and she has um, worked in that department um, before me and we have become great friends and great colleagues. And then we also have a part-time physiotherapist that works with us. So in our small little area, uh, our hospital, you know, we, our city is about a hundred thousand people. So it's not a very big city, but we have um, basically the equivalent of 2.5 hand therapists. Cool. Yeah. We're a great little network uh, and we work well together and we, um, yeah, we get along really well. Yeah, there's not a whole lot that beats having great people to work with and great hand surgeons to boot. Exactly. So we have four hand surgeons that are working with us now two and a half therapists, and we meet almost every day with, um, with, our, with the team because the way the, the clinics are set up, we have um, pretty much daily contact with one or more surgeons every day. And then we work, the, the therapists, we work either in the clinic in the mornings or we work in our own department area in the hospital and we're working within the same room. So a lot, it, it might be busy and it might be bustly, but we, you know, we're, we're there together and it's great because we can, you know, chit chat back and forth. If there's a concern, you know, it's, it's easy to just say, can you come over here and just take a peek at this with me? What do you think? And it, it's a really rewarding and great um, relationship. Yeah. And I loved our talk that we had with Dr. Lalonde and he spoke quite a bit about the flexor tendon early motion and wide awake and relative motion and the pencil test. And so would you just share with the listeners what changes you've seen since you started, since you've been there quite a long time, what changes have you seen overall in practices with regards to, let's start with just flexor tendons. Sure. Yes. I don't think I'll ever meet a more passionate hand surgeon that would really like to be a hand therapist <laughs> other than Dr. Lalonde. But we, I have been lucky because when I started out so way back in late 2002, 2003, what I knew as my norm was that we worked in the clinic alongside our surgeons. So as they were meeting patients for the first time, we were meeting patients for the first time as well, 
together. So a lot of times the surgeon would go in and then they would pop their head back out the hallway. And if we weren't busy with another patient, they'd say, oh, can we get your opinion in here? And they'd cut, we'd go in and we'd be looking at the patient at the same time together in the room. And I thought this was normal. I just thought <laughs> this was how hand therapy worked anywhere. And it just made sense to me. And certainly with opportunity to travel around and to present at different places and um, to just meet other hand therapists. I know on a yearly basis that I have a very, very lucky thing and that not everybody has, has what I thought was just a typical hand therapy experience. <laughs> so that would probably be one of the biggest things that I see as a change, even though it's not a change for me, it's the, what I appreciate when I go away and I meet people who say, you know, they've never met their surgeon, mm -hmm. they have regular phone conversations with them, or they have, you know, some kind of uh, written communication with their surgeons, but they've never actually met their surgeon, or they've never had an opportunity to see the work of their surgeon. So like in an OR setting or in a local anesthesia clinic setting. And I have, and I have from day one, and, you know, I don't take that for granted anymore because I, I'm learning that this is not something that everybody gets to experience. So that's one thing. The mm -hmm. second thing is when I first started work, um, we were following the modified Duran program with the flexor tendons and it, um, it was okay. I mean, we weren't getting terrible results, but we weren't getting the best results, but the biggest thing that I saw with it is the, um, it was what patients were coming back telling me. So I was telling patients, you know, you really have to wear the splint all the time and you really have to follow these exercises. And they were coming back and they were saying that they were doing what I had said, but they were also doing other things, meaning, well, I just, I had to take the splint off ju just for this, but I'm not really using my hand. I'm just doing this. And they would be showing me their own type of exercise. So I'm doing your exercise, Amanda, but you know what? Like, look at this. When I like wiggle my fingers or if I try to touch my mm -hmm. palm, I, I can move my fingers. I know my tendon is working. And I got, you know, after a few years of that, I got to thinking these patients can't be wrong. <laughs> you can't <laughs> have this many people coming back with really good results and doing a lot more than what I'm really telling people to do. And so one of the biggest changes I think I've had in my practice with, with the surgeons I work with, with the opportunity of, you know, local anesthesia and being in a clinic setting with surgeons is that I listen to my patients more. And if, if patients are moving a little bit and if they understand, certainly not not to do any torquing or forceful gripping or anything like that, a little movement is normal. A little wiggle of the finger, a little, you know, independent finger movement must be good because some people with, that we were treating were following everything that we said about the modified Duran program to a T and they were getting stuck in scar. So that's one big change that I've had with my flexor tendon program over the years. The other one, is I'm starting to loosen up on splinting. Oh. I know, ah! but I started out with a dorsal block splint with the wrist in a little bit of flexion and the fingers in obviously in just some protected um, gentle flexion. I moved from that 
to having the wrist in extension. And a lot of that was done with the Indiana hand program and, and synergistic movement. And then I got out of the long dorsal block splint altogether. And now I, you know, I leave the wrist free. And sometimes I leave the wrist free following the Manchester splint protocol. I leave it free almost four, immediately four days after surgery. So another big change that we've experienced in, in our flexor tendon program is, is the splinting. We've gone from a dorsal block full-time six weeks to, you know what, it's okay for people to come out, wash their hand, wash their wounds, have the splint off. It's okay for a little bit of wrist movement at the very beginning, as long as patients understand what we don't want. We don't want forceful gripping movement and forceful gripping activity of the hand. And, uh, and then the other thing is just is the movement part. I'm not as strict in, these are the exercises you have to do and you have to do them all the time. Now I'm focused more on, I wanna give you some exercises because I don't want things to get stuck and scar, but as long as you know how to protect your tendon, why don't we get you using your hand for some light activities at the beginning, just to start working on just getting some normal gentle movement. And I learned a lot of that from a hand therapist named Gwen Van Strian. I've had opportunity to, to meet Gwen um, at different conferences and hear her speak. And, uh, and I follow her on LinkedIn as well, but she has a really great way of saying, you know what, we, we can protect tendons, but still allow people to be a little bit functional. And that's probably the latest change that I've, I've had with my flexor tendon program. So that's with flexor tendons. With relative motion, Relative motion splinting was something that um, I learned from Julianne Howell. So she's a therapist in the United States who worked with um, Wendell Merritt, Sandy Robinson, and a few other people. And they kind of brought up the idea of um, relative motion. And I remember being at one of the AAHS conferences and I went to one of the splinting modules back in 2006 and I learned about this splint. And I came back and I said to Dr. Lalonde, this is a really neat splint. I don't know what I'm going to use it for, but this is really neat. And especially with extensors. And of course he was on board right from, from day one. He's like, it sounds great. It's from Julianne and Wendell Merritt. We're going to use it. We're going to just implement it starting right now. So, so I'm like, okay. So that's another huge change in my practice. Relative motion splinting became you use this for, you know, sagittal band tears and extensor tendon injuries to it's now kind of like the splint I keep in my back pocket. So if somebody comes in to see me and I really don't know why they're having the pain that they're having, a lot of times I'll try relative motion splinting. I'll just see, well, what if I offset some of these fingers? Does it work? And so that's another huge change that I've had in my, my practice since I started. And that's relying more and more on relative motion splinting. Yeah. He seemed like a kid in a candy shop when he talked about the, well, you can put their fingers like this and if it works, there you go. You just put them in a relative motion splint and I could see him saying, okay, that one works. Send them right over to you. And 
stick him in a relative motion split because my guess is as much as he'd like to make the splits, he still allows you to do that instead of him creating those. <laughs> yes, he does. Although he loves to mimic, mimic it with either a pen or a marking, a surgical marking pen or a Q-tip or something like that. And the others, I work with um, a surgeon named Dr. Jeff Cook and another surgeon named Dr. Ian Maxwell, and they are equally like, well, what do you think about relative motion? for almost everything. And I'm like, sometimes you get to a point where you're like, ah, I would get to that myself if I just had the moment. <laughs> All right. That's a big difference when you're in a clinic where you have hand surgeons versus surgeons that dabble in hands. So you're already getting people that have been diagnosed properly. Absolutely. You know, they're not, it's not just that they've gone to their family physician and gotten the diagnosis. They've seen an actual hand specialist or a hand surgeon. And, uh, and then, and a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times I'm along, um, when the diagnosis is made. So I've, I've been able to watch, um, you know, like the techniques that the surgeons use to try to determine what diagnosis it is. I've developed those skills now because I've gotten so comfortable watching, uh, people who've been doing this for such a long time and longer than I have that when I do meet patients or if the surgeon's like, oh, I'm going to go in this room. Can you go into the other room and see what's going on? I have confidence. I know I'm going to go in there and I'm going to be able to try to pinpoint exactly what's going on. But it's a world of difference than when you get that referral from another specialist who might not know a lot about hands. And then you don't agree with the diagnosis that they have been given. And it's a lot of, you don't want to step on anybody's toes or, you know, overstep your boundaries as an occupational therapist versus a medical profession. But you don't want your patient to be treated the wrong way or, or have to wear the wrong splint just because you don't um, feel comfortable to go with your own clinical judgment as opposed to somebody else's. So you're fortunate that you don't... In counter that like many therapists do because of the setting you're in. Exactly. Yeah. I'm very lucky. And, uh, and I have a, a lot of times in the clinic setting, it's not just me and the surgeon. If we have really complicated things, like sometimes things are just like, wow, what's going on? Well, you know, I'll say, oh, hey, Lisa, come on in here and with, you know, the surgeon and myself, what do you think is going on? So it, we we have a setting where it's a multidisciplinary team and we don't mind sharing and getting other people's opinions. Likewise, a lot of times the surgeons I'm, I'm with will also pull in other surgeons and be like, look, like this is a really interesting case. Like what, what do you guys think is going on? So we're very lucky that way because we have the time and the resources to kind of um, quickly but efficiently diagnose people on the spot. Sweet. So let's track back just a little bit to the Manchester splint and discussing that just for a minute, because some of the listeners might not be familiar with that. So if you could share a little bit more about how you've transitioned to that. And I, and I loved how you said you're actually not even requiring a dorsal block splint anymore. When would you still require it? When don't you require it? Is it case by case. Can you just explain to them a little more about the Manchester orthosis than the protocol and a little bit about your decision-making plans when you first get a flexor tendon and what type you do what with? For sure. So if I get, usually I get the flexor tendon the day of, so either the day they've had their repair or a few days after. 
and I will still, I typically still put people in a, um, a, a full dorsal block splint with wrist in comfortable extension, MCP joints in about 30 degrees of flexion and your IP joints in as much extension as you possibly can. And I'll do that day one um, and even sometimes a few days after. And I do that because really I, I'm not going to show people how to move their fingers for the first four or five days. Usually people, well, in my case, they're they're awake, but their hand is frozen. So they can't figure out what 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 feels bad what doesn't feel good when they're doing their exercises so i don't want people uh when they're frozen to be doing any program i don't want them to use their hand and i don't want them to move their hand what i want them to concentrate on those first few days is trying to get the swelling under control so with elevation um ice if they want to but basically just elevating it above the heart and having it at rest those are you know those are traditional stays about how to treat some something that's that's swollen so I do that. When they come back to see me though, like around that four day mark, I do a lot of education. So, I, you know, I don't want to saturate the patient with a whole bunch of information, but I want to know a little bit more about them. If there's somebody who just seems to be like, they get it, they understand, like you've taught them about tendon, you taught them about the flexor and, and then why it wouldn't be great if your wrist was in, you know, full flexion, it's full extension and why your fingers wouldn't be great if they were in a full clenched fist or mm -hmm. out straight completely. If they get that, then I'll put them, I'll follow the Manchester um, short splint protocol. And I'll talk about that in one second. If I'm still a little bit, well, I don't know, they're having a hard time with their swelling. They're having a hard time understanding the, the exercises or the movement. I might leave them in the, long, the, the dorsal block splint for a little bit longer up until about, you know, the 10 day, two week mark. Certainly by two weeks, most of my patients, um, whether it's zone one, zone two, and even zone three are going into a Manchester short splint. The Manchester short splint uh, it, it's well documented. It, it was started off in Manchester, United Kingdom. So if no one's ever heard of it, the first thing you want to do is a Google search on the Manchester short splint. And the lead author at, um, for a, a big um, point of time is Fiona Peck, Dr. Fiona Peck, who's a hand therapist over there, and Dr. Jason Wong. Um, so if you Google the, the Manchester short splint, those are the articles that you'll see come up. And I believe Dr. Um, uh, Peck has, has recently retired. So there are other people now in Manchester carrying it on. But there is a wonderful protocol that is written by them. They have a few articles on them. And basically, the Manchester short splint is still technically a dorsal block splint. You still hold your MCP joints in about uh, 30 degrees flexion, and they still advocate for full IP joint extension. And then it just doesn't, it doesn't completely cross the wrist in that they kind of splay it out just after the ulnar um, head. And so it limits people. So people still can flex their wrist now as much as they want within that protected zone with the MCP joints held in 30 degrees flexion. And they can come back into extension with the splint on up to 45 degrees. So they can't go beyond. And, and there's been work with Tanaka and um, a few other um, researchers out there showing that, you know, certain um, wrist movements are still safe with, with flexor tendons. The biggest thing, it's not necessarily the movement. Movement is not what usually causes rupture. What causes rupture of flexor tendons is 
is like forceful use. So someone who, who accidentally falls, somebody who grabs onto their baby carriage um, when they're because they just don't think about it, or somebody who carries a load of groceries in their hand, or somebody who goes back to prison and fights somebody. Those are the type, like you see, those are the ruptures that I tend to, to witness or see. Not just gentle movement. So if people understand or are blocked right, then, then they should be safe and they should understand what they're doing. So with their program though, they start, they have been doing zone one and zone two flexor tendon repairs with this Manchester short splint right out from the get-go. So either day one or day four after surgery. So I follow that, but I still use my clinical reasoning. If I don't think patients are ready for that, or if I'm just a little bit worried, or I don't feel like I really got a good handle on the um, the patient, then I'll leave my dorsal blocks just a little bit longer, delay uh, getting the wrist moving up until that two-week point. That's great to, to hear that. And it, I, I really enjoy hearing how each case is based on how that person presents. And you're not a I have to follow this rigid protocol. I think that's very helpful, especially for people that have that fear that they have to follow this protocol or that protocol. They need to understand that their intuition about the person is very often the right way to go with things because the person, you can get a very good feel just from listening to them and and how they are to determine the best quote protocol that would be good for them. I agree. And I mean, a lot of times we inundate our patients just with information. They get so much, you know, right after they've had surgery and they've got so they get so much when they first meet me about, okay, what you can do, what you can't do. And it's overwhelming. And sometimes you can just see the stress on people. And you're just like, you know what? I'm going to show them exercises today, but I'm not going to get them into a a shorter splint. I'm going to just keep them uh, in the long splint. And the next time they come in, that will be the change that they get. And that's another thing that I like about clinical reasoning is that you know, I find people want to come and see me when they know something is going to change. So, you know, if I can, you know, spread out the, some of the things that they can look forward to over a course of six or seven weeks, then I can grab their attention a little bit and they're going to retain the information because every time they come to see me, my focus, my number one focus is on patient education. And it's always, now remember, we don't want to put the tendon, you know, in a position that would cause stress or strain on that repair. And these are the positions that we're avoiding. Okay. Let's review your exercises. I'm going to change your splint today. I think you can have a shorter splint and, mm-hmm. you know, just giving little bits, but there are other people that you'll know right away. Well, if I don't change the splint and educate them on that, they're going to just take it off. Well, I don't want them to just take off the splint. So I would rather be the one to f- try to change that first. So if they're coming back and they're kind of itchy, or they've already said in the four days when I told them to elevate it, oh, I've had that dorsal block splint off all the time. And, you know, I, I'm moving my fingers like this and this, and they're nothing like what I showed them. Then I'm like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to shorten the splint. I'm going to make their wrist free because at least then they're going to have a little bit more freedom with their hand, but I'm still going to educate the patient so that they know that yes, you're going to have a little bit more freedom, but these are still the positions that you need to avoid. So when you describe to them to make it easy on them, and you're talking about, uh, as Dr. Lalonde said, about a half fist, 
and the and he did go into a little bit about place and hold and why you aren't utilizing that technique anymore. How do you show them a half fist so that they aren't making a full fist and d- differentiating that so that you get what you want out of them? That's a great question because it is really difficult. It's amazing because it, when Dr. Levon and I talk about a half fist, we seem to both be on the same page. We know exactly what each other is talking about. But sometimes when I say to my patients, well, we want a half fist, that does not translate over the same way. So I'll start off by saying we, we don't need full movement of your hand. We're really only interested in some movement at this point. So then I'll say, well, show me, you know, with your other hand, I want you to show me what a full fist looks like. So then they do that. And then I'll say, now, what do you think would be a half fist? And so then they kind of pull their, their fingers away from their palm. And then I'll say, well, that's kind of what I'm looking for. That's the movement that we want right now. Now, Gwen Van Strian, She's, uh, I've mentioned her before. She, I use her tips a lot. If I'm looking at people and I'm like, they just do not get what I'm saying. She has this really neat scratch exercise. So she'll put the uh, fingers of her other, of the patient's other hand into the palm of the injured hand and then say, you know, scratch down those fingers. And that's another way of trying to say, okay, you don't need full movement. You just need a little bit of movement. Another thing that I've kind of picked up in the last five or six years is some people when they make a fist initiate at the MP joint and some people initiate at the DIP joint. And this was something that I kind of was like, huh, because when they initiate at the MP joint, they're, they're really doing like a flat fist or, or, or mostly using their lumbrical muscles and then a little bit of their flexors at the end but not the FDP. So your DIP joints end up being quite straight and there's really no active glide on it. So not only have I had to try to adapt with half fist, which Dr. Lalonde is still really, really keen on. He likes that half fist idea because he thinks that patients really get it. But what I've kind of started trying to tell my patients is that it's more of a tuck position. Within their dorsal block splint, their MP joints are held at 30. I want them to start their movement at the DIP joint. I want them to try to tuck their fingers towards their palm so that there's really more movement at the DIP and the PIP joint than there is at the MP joint, still going towards that, not a full fist. Now, I don't want them to necessarily touch their palm in the first couple of weeks. I just want them to try and initiate movement at the DIP, PIP joint and get almost like what we would call a modified tuck. A full tuck, your your MP joints are out straight. Well, the dorsal block splint isn't allowing your MP joints to be fully straight. There's a 30 degree bend on them. So it's more of a modified movement. And so that's what I've been working on with my patients. So understanding that a half, like looking at their other hand, trying to see what a full fist is to them, what a half fist is to them on the hand that isn't injured, trying to see what they do when they make the fist. Are they initiating too much at the MP joint and really not getting a lot of tendon glide? Well, then I start talking more about a tuck kind of idea and the idea of initiating that movement at, at the DIP joint to try and get that, that um, differential tendon glide, which is trying to avoid tendon adhesion. Fantastic tips, really. Uh, thank you so much for 
for sharing those because they do sometimes do the the bye bye wave with the MPs and they're doing the bye bye and that's not getting any glide whatsoever. So that is extremely helpful about the t- the tuck. And when do you like to see them have a full fist? Anywhere between the four and six week mark. So. I have some patients just depending on scar and swelling, you know, they can, they're easily able to kind of get their fingers to glide and pull down to a full fist around that four week mark. And I'm okay with that because again, it's the movement, it's gentle. They're not pulling against anything. They're not forceful. So to be able to move into a full fist early on, I'm not worried about, I don't want them to then go and use that. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't want them to use their hand. That's not true because I get them to do like activities. I don't want them to be forceful. I don't want them to grip something heavy or like turn a valve at work or do anything that's torquing or, 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 or really forceful with it. But certainly the earlier in the program that I can get that full range of motion. And so around that four week mark is the best. And sometimes people come back at four weeks and they're not there. They're still getting, you know, kind of towards the half fist or the three quarter mark fist. Um, and then I just keep encouraging. And I hope that at six weeks, they've got pretty much a decent fist, but even then not everybody does. Unfortunately, some people just have really thick, you know, scar production or, you know, small fingers. I'm not sure about your listeners, but small fingers are always a challenge for me. Um, And so at six weeks, yeah, they might still not have a fist, um, but we're not necessarily getting them to wear the splint anymore. And our goal and our focus is still on initiating movement at the DIP joint with that modified or with that tuck or modified movement and, and still working on tendon glide. And when you're talking about scar, that Brings me to my next question. And Dr. Lalonde had mentioned that you utilize the ultrasound to determine when someone's stuck in scar and possibly ruptured. And I've had actually several therapists emailing me saying, We've never heard of anything like this. And how do we get a hold of this type of equipment? So I thought you could expand on that a little <laughs> because it was something that was quite unique uh, to many practitioners. Yeah. We, yeah, it, we were really excited when we heard this. So the plastic surgery department at our hospital kind of spearheaded that. So Dr. Lalonde and his colleagues, and they, they really wanted it for a a lot of other things, but it's been so helpful with um, regards to flexor tendon. Um, They are very expensive (laughs) because I was like, oh, it'd be nice to have one for our department, but yeah, mm, no, (laughs) but we have access to it, which is really great. And so I have a colleague that works with the rheumatology program at our hospital. And she was just telling me the other day that, you know, she went, she took a patient over and used ultrasound to kind of visualize some joint stuff that was going on with regards to rheumatology changes. But um, the way it is, is it's housed in the clinic of the the hospital. And so other programs or other departments can also use it. So during our plastic surgery clinics, it's basically available for us. So if we have, uh, if we're working with a flexor tendon um, patient and somewhere along their program, we're concerned or, you know, they're just, it doesn't make sense or whatever, we can bring them, arrange for them to come back to a clinic visit. and um, we can get this ultrasound machine set up and we can use it. And uh, now this, I find the surgeons are a little bit better at it than me. I'm getting better at, at looking at the image and trying to tell myself what I'm looking at. But I mean, 
I've never had any courses in it. So I certainly wouldn't use it definitively to say, yes, I think that this is that that this is a rupture or this is stuck in scar. But with my with a team, so with my surgeon, I would look at it and we can discuss together as we're looking at it. No, I'm like, no, you know what? I think I can see distal movement or I can see proximal movement. No, I, I think that that it's just stuck in scar. I don't think that that is um, ruptured at all. So it gives me assurance that everything's going fine. It gives the patient assurance that everything's going fine because they're seeing me, the surgeon, talking looking at their tendon on this little video screen and they even are you know dr lund especially he's uh, he gives them the wand and says okay now you move it for a while i'll be back in a few minutes and so the patient is sitting there moving their finger back and forth back and forth watching the screen watching so it's a lot of biofeedback so we've been having a lot of fun with it because you know you could you know even with extensors I'll, i i mean I, I don't tend to worry about tendon rupture with extensors as much but um but just to even watch it glide or just to be like, oh, or, you know, you're trying to determine if a sagittal band really is disrupted. So you can kind of watch this, this, uh, this tendon glide. So it's been really, really uh, an, a neat thing. Is it, should we, should therapists have it? I mean, at this point in the medical care, I, th- I think it'd be just so expensive mm-hmm. to have to worry that this is where all um, hand therapists need to to focus. I still think clinical reasoning, um, you know, is really good. A lot of times when I take people over the ultrasound, I already have an idea. I'm already like, I'm pretty sure it's stuck in scar, not ruptured. I just want to be, I just want the confirmation kind of thing. So it's, it's just nice to have that. And we're really lucky that we have that, but certainly I, I wouldn't, I don't, we don't own an, occup- uh, an ultrasound machine within our department of occupational therapy. Very cool that you have that opportunity. And it is something good for practitioners to know, even if they don't have it, to potentially refer them back to the surgeons that then perhaps have access to the equipment as an assessment tool to determine if the person is indeed ruptured or not. Exactly. Yeah. So when you do find out they're stuck in scar, is it, it seemed like that's when Dr. Lalonde would pull out his pencil and say, let's try a a pencil assessment. And is that something that you would do next once you determine scar? Once you say, okay, we got some scar, where are you going from there? <laughs> yes. So once people kind of get through this magical six week mark, um, I still follow a six week mark when it comes to, you know, dorsal block splinting, Manchester splinting, whatever. Right now, um, there's certainly some really exciting changes. Um, with regards to that's what's so exciting about flexor tendons right now is that there's so much happening um and it's exciting because i think we're going to see even more movement towards less splinting there's a surgeon actually in texas um with julianne hell that um have it has an article um i can't remember if it's still pending or if it's out in 2019 but they're using relative motion flexion splinting for uh flexor tendon management right off the get-go which is pretty exciting for me. But anyway, I haven't had opportunity to, to start off there just because I haven't had a patient come through that I could start them with. But yeah, so around that six week mark and you're, we're working hard on trying to get, you know, extension of the PIP joint or flexion of the, of the DIP and the PIP joint following a flexor tendon repair, um, I start to get a little creative. I, I feel like at six weeks, you know, okay, we, we don't have to worry as much. Um, about, you know, 
getting people protected or in a dorsal block. So let's remove some of that stuff. And then we start thinking, okay, well, what's going on and what can we fix? So if it's a PIP joint, it's kind of unfortunately developed a flexion contracture just from the way it was exercised or the way it was positioned in the, in the splint. Then I start, I grab my pencil and I start looking, well, if I put that MCP joint in more flexion, does that help to extend the the, the PIP joint? Yes, it does. Okay, well, I'm going to use relative motion flexion now with my program. Patients are just going to use their hand for, for regular activity, not strenuous, still not like torquing or anything like that at the 60th mark, but just regular activity now, you know, eating, getting dressed, and, you know, carrying like groceries and stuff like that with a relative motion flexion splint to see if we can get a little bit more um, extension of the PIP joint and get it out of that flexion contracture. Likewise, if people are actually doing pretty good with extension of their fingers, because for whatever reason, earlier on in the program, the exercise was working really well and people were really in a protective way extending those, those IP joints, but they don't have that full fist. They aren't able to get their fingertips down to their palm in a really gentle. Then I will try relative motion extension splinting. And so MCP joint of the finger or fingers, particularly if they're you know, adjacent to each other is great, but I'll put those MCP joints in a little bit of extension. And now I'm getting people to try to bend and exercise or exercise uh, like what Gwen Van Strian and Dr. Don Lalonde like to say, exercise while living. So they're, mm -hmm. they're using their hand, they're doing the things that they want to do, but they're wearing a relative motion extension splint now to see if it can encourage a little bit more bend at the, at the DIP and the PIP joints. So if those strategies don't work, and Dr. Lalonde did mention that tenolysis is not utilized very often and the person still has significant limitations. Do you have any other tips that the listeners might be able to utilize if those things didn't facilitate what you wanted? For sure. I, I'm a huge proponent of time. Now, mind you, I come from the Canadian system. So, you know, I, I sometimes will see patients for a whole year after their injury, not on a weekly basis, but I might but it's certainly after the three month mark, I might say, okay, I, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing you again in six weeks. I wouldn't mind seeing you again at your six month mark kind of thing. And I have, I'm able to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm a huge proponent for time. I am amazed by the amount of change I see in someone's finger, even without my influence, Ooh, hard to say, <laughs> but I, even without my, in that last six to 12 month mark. And I mean, a lot of that is with what we know about healing. Like, eventually patients aren't going to lay down more scar. So usually it could be around that four to six month mark that there isn't going to be any more scar proliferation. You're, you then enter into the scar maturation phase where the, where the scar that you've got is there. You're not going to get any more, thankfully, but what you've got is there and it's there for, for good but it starts to soften and it starts to manipulate and your tendon, which was having trouble pushing through it all of a sudden, you know, little by little gets to push through. So I'm, I'm always amazed when I see people later on in their program um, that, you know, things do soften up and things do can turn around. I, I, I recently had somebody that I saw at the three month mark and he had a pretty like significant PIP joint flexion contracture. And really, you know, he had decent flexion, but it wasn't super hot. He came back at seven months and he had 
full extension of that of that PIP joint and um, and and full flexion. And a lot of it was that he just continued to do scar massage. He continued to do his active tuck exercise, despite the fact that it was still six months post-surgery and all of his neighbors were telling him, oh my goodness, you need to go and get somebody to do something about that. Uh, but he kept listening to me and I kept saying, eventually, you know, it, I wonder if it'll just soften with time. And so a lot of times I'm with Dr. Lalonde and I learned this through when I first started working, the surgeons that I worked with at the time, Dr. Lalonde, Dr. Sparks, and Dr. O'Brien, they were not interested in doing tenolysis. They would always tell me, I would bring people back and I'd say, I feel terrible. They're three months out of their program and they really want to do X, Y, and Z. And what do you think? And they'd be like, well, let's wait a year. And then we'll talk and bring them back to me at a year's time. And then we'll talk tenolysis if we have to. And it is really, really rare to see somebody go through tenolysis at our, our department. And I wonder if it's just because of time. I wonder if it's just, um, you know, unfortunately, some things just, just need the time to soften and to allow the structures to kind of pull through and to glide. And so just the traditional things for me is what I, I keep telling people. Massage, move, use, and, and don't do what hurts. Whatever causes pain is obviously not what your your finger wants at that time and try to avoid doing that. And then you're you're avoiding another inflammation process, which will limit your movement and set you back. And I think those are the 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 biggest tips that I can I could give to somebody is, you know, it it doesn't always ha- unfortunately it doesn't always happen at three months. You don't always get your best result at three months. But with some time, you could be looking at something different. That's so valuable because therapists don't like to discharge patients in a position where they don't have everything back or they are not where they want to be. That feeling of guilt, almost like you didn't provide them the proper care. It, it weighs quite heavily. So I, that is extremely valuable to therapists to hear and understand that they've done what they're supposed to do and we're coaches. I agree with that. I think that those are really good points just because we we've gotten to them. We've helped them or coached them along to where they are. doesn't mean that they're going to stop doing things as long as they understand what they need to do, then yeah, they can, they should be able to continue on on their own. And I mean, another thing is that if people rush in for a second surgery and that, and the first injury hasn't even had a chance to stop scarring. And then the surgeon's gone in to do the first repair of the tendon well now you've got that second uh scar process on it and then all of a sudden you're looking at a tenolysis you know four or five months after the surgery well then you could possibly have a third scar process on your hand and and the first two weren't so friendly so why would the third one be any better i I think that's so important to hear because how many patients have we seen over the years that the patients were frustrated. So then the doctor's frustrated because the patient's frustrated and the therapist is frustrated. Everyone's frustrated. So they say, okay, let's do a tenolysis. And then it's so much worse. It's not better. So yeah. the learning patients and time are on everyone's side. That's, that's a hard thing to learn because everybody wants it yesterday with our fast paced world and the way we live. So it is, it's hard to accept that but that's what we're there for. We're coaches to help them understand that. Thank I you like so it. much. I am so thrilled that you spent the time with our listeners teaching us and 
giving us your information and so generously and thank you. I, I don't even know how to thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And we will definitely look forward to having another discussion someday soon and hearing all the exciting changes that are occurring in flexor tendon repairs and probably many other repairs that you didn't have time to share. So thank you again. (laughs) Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thank you for joining us and being valuable Hand Therapy Hero listeners. I've compiled some of the information Amanda has shared with you on an information sheet. If you'd like a copy, please email info at handtherapy.com and put Amanda in the email. Thank you for listening to Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow. Tomorrow.